Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us today with their analysis, Jim McCormick, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Iowa State University. Hi, Jim. Hi, Ben. Happy New Happy New Year to you as well and to Donna Hoffman. Uh, Donna has a new title with a new year, the Chuck and Barbara Grassley Professor of Political Science at the University of Northern Iowa. Donna, congratulations on the new title and Happy New Year and welcome. Well, thank you, Ben. It's an honor to uh, be named the Chuck and Barbara Grassley uh, Professor at uh, UNI of Political Science. It doesn't change anything uh, in terms of what I do, um, but it's nice to have uh, kind of a stamp of approval uh, that the Grassleys give to you and I, um, and especially at a time when higher education oftentimes is um, under attack in some quarters, um, faith in higher education is heartening personally to me. Okay, join our conversation one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred as we move through about a half a dozen items. We'll see how much time permits one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred or River to River at iowapublicradio.org. We'll talk about the Republican priorities in the legislature and also uh, the issue of gun violence in the aftermath of the Perry shooting. Um, Donald Trump's claims of immunity against prosecution. Um, We'll have some uh, courtroom audio there. Also, the deal to avert a government shutdown. Same story. (laughs) Uh, New verse. uh, Funding for foreign policy hotspots and the southern border. An issue. Also, of course, uh, the caucus race, just five days away from caucus day. We'll uh, get Donna and Jim's views of where that race stands. But first of all, as a winter storm swept through the state yesterday evening, Governor Kim Reynolds gave her condition of the state address uh, in the Iowa House. She said she plans to continue her work this year on cutting taxes, consolidating, reorganizing Iowa's state government systems, uh, a focus on special education, boards and commissions, mental health uh, providers. She started her speech with a moment of silence for the victims and families of last week's Perry High School shooting, uh, just as legislative uh, leaders did on Monday when they opened their session. Um, uh, In her condition of the state address, uh, she announced proposals to invest $96 $96 million to increase teachers' starting pay by 50% to 50000 to expand Medicaid postpartum care coverage to 12 months after birth for new moms making less than $42,000 a year, and to reduce the income tax rate uh, uh, to a flat 6.3.65% to take effect this year. Uh, Reynolds went beyond domestic issues in her address, uh, stating that sometimes, quote, the federal government has refused to carry out its constitutional duty. She referred to her deployment of the National Guard soldiers to the southern border last year. She pointed to the threat of China growing more aggressive in buying American land, though Reynolds stated that Iowa has some of the strongest laws in the nation on foreign ownership of land. Um, She announced a proposal to go further. Let's listen. But as China's threat adapts, our laws should too. Because we cannot let foreign governments undermine the agricultural dominance that we have, that our farmers have worked so hard to build. 
To that end, working in conjunction with Secretary of Agriculture Nag, Attorney General Berg, we've developed a bill to further protect our farmland from foreign interest. The legislation will enhance reporting and enforcement, increase penalties, and provide more transparency to Iowans on what land is currently under foreign ownership. Let's continue to lead the nation. Let's make sure that American soil remains in American hands. Jim McCormick, start us off. What stood out for you about the, the Reynolds um, condition of the state address on, on, on that China note or, or otherwise? Well, I think the first thing that, that struck me is that sort of the ambitious uh, kind of agenda that she really put forward. I was, as I was watching the presentation last night, I was taking notes on, you know, some of the, the different items. And uh, the first seven items that she talked about, uh, if my count is correct, dealt with education. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, of course, that's very appropriate, given that Iowa has always been concerned about, uh, you know, leading or trying to lead the nation in terms of the quality of education. But it was that not only, as you mentioned, in terms of teacher's salary here, getting a, a, a beginning salary of $50,000 for, uh, for a beginning instructor here, uh, you know, and she said that this would be one of the highest beginning salaries in the country. But she also talked about reading, uh, you know, improving reading, uh, I was kind of struck, um, and I didn't know this statistic. Uh, I think she said, if I heard her correctly, that 35% of third graders uh, in Iowa, you know, are not do not meet, uh, you know, the present standards. So I think the educational piece was the thing that uh, that immediately uh, struck me. And of course, in, in line with given what happened at Perry, the the, the discussion of mental health and trying to consolidate. Uh, you know, the problem, of course, with consolidation always is that some things slip through the cracks here. You know, she said you're going to combine these these various agencies into, you know, just a seven seven groupings here uh, to provide better mental health care. I guess one of the things that struck me about that is that, you know, what does that, you know, can that really be a kind of a smooth, smooth transition? And as the broadcast, uh, as you talked about, about the ADA and the broadcast at the beginning of the hour, you know, the whole issue of the ADA is going to be also, I think, consequential in terms uh, of the educational AEA, yes. A- AEA, did I? Yes, yeah. right, right. <laughs> Not the Americans for Democratic we have talked Action. About, <laughs> we have talked about disabilities many times on this program, yeah. but in this case, uh, I knew what you meant there, Jim. Yeah. The uh, area education Asian. agencies. Yeah, these are thank the, you. <laughs> these are the nine <laughs> nine regional entities that provide uh, special education services for IONS with, with disabilities from birth through um, age 21, I, I believe. And I'm, you know, the only um, statewide Democratic office holder, Rob Sand, uh, critical uh, of the, the changes that the governor plans to introduce there. Uh, Donna, what, what did you hear in the governor's address that uh, stood out? Well, right. I think the the emphasis on education is is tops, as Jim noted, but uh, also then taxes, uh, education and taxes. A little bit of healthcare thrown in there. Um, we talked a little bit about the mention of a couple of foreign policy items, which is unusual in a state uh, in a governor's state of the condition of the state address. Whereas you expect that you know to hear that in a, a presidential uh, state of the union, for example. Um, and so uh, the other thing I would point there is that consolidation, right? We saw a lot of things consolidated in terms of state agencies uh, in the last session, and that's going to um, continue 
with looking at boards and commissions. I would expect that uh, that is probably an accomplishment the governor will be able to, to rack up with the legislature going along with that. Um, but looking at those kinds of things, not mentioned by her, but something that's of interest to me in particular, because Iowa is unique in this, is the gender balance. Uh, law that we have on those boards and commissions. And uh, that likely is um, something that is looking to be dropped is my guess as well. Although she did not state that uh, this was one of the things when those boards and commissions were under review that, that was brought up. And so, you know, always the devil is in the details on what that looks like. And we just get kind of top line uh, things that the mm -hmm. governor wants to prioritize in her speech. And so we, we saw that yesterday in terms of the things that she was accentuating um, that she thinks will be the most popular that uh, the legislature will uh, adopt. Um, of course, the governor working uh, together with the Republican majority, and in some one case, the supermajority in the chamber of the uh, uh, Iowa legislature. They began their legislative session on Monday. Uh, it happened as hundreds of activists rallied for gun laws in the wake of the Perry shooting. Um, the gun violence advocacy group March for Our Lives hosted a statewide student walkout on Monday alongside the Capitol protest. Um, uh, the House and the Senate uh, in uh, the Iowa legislature gaveled in at 10 a.m. on Monday. Um, leaders there also calling for a moment of silence in honor of the victims and families of that January 4th shooting at Prairie High School. Uh, the 17-year-old gunman, uh, a student killing an 11-year-old boy uh, on Thursday, the, the 4th of January, injuring seven others and staff. Um, that gunman found dead after a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Now, uh, to the politics uh, of this, of course, it raises uh, gun violence here. For years, uh, Jim, the Iowa GOP has been moving toward less restrictive gun rights measures. Uh, Democrats uh, offering, of course, condolences to the Perry community and victims in their opening speeches on Monday. But Senator Minority Leader Pam Yoakum, for instance, saying Iowa lawmakers much, must take action to address uh, gun violence. Jim, do you see the Perry shooting changing anything fundamental about the gun debate here in Iowa? I don't think so. Uh, I think, you know, given the strong Republican majority that the governor has in the legislature, uh, I would be surprised. I mean, you know, in contrast to what Pam Yoakum said, you know, the, the uh, I think Pat Grassley, you know, the Speaker of the House, you know, talked about greater school safety and so on and mm -hmm. providing kind of that kind of support uh, rather than, you know, focusing on the gun, the, the gun dimension here. I do think that, you know, the, the kind of demonstration that we saw, you know, uh, at, at the opening session as well in terms of people protesting, you know, certainly brings, brings up that attention. But I, I don't, I, I can't imagine that, you know, given the, uh, you know, the, really the emphasis uh, by the Republicans on the Second Amendment and so on, uh, that there would be, uh, would be much uh, done in terms of uh, yeah. gun, gun control itself, uh, certainly in terms of some school safety items there might be, but that would be very much in line with what the, the governor has talked about in terms of, uh, in terms of the whole educational uh, system here in terms of her, eff mm -hmm. her efforts to uh, yeah. streamline it. Donna, we have about a minute before we go to break. What are your thoughts here? 
Um, I think, you know, we can see it's kind of indicative of the news cycle. The Perry story, uh, much to maybe our regret, has really kind of fallen out of the news. Uh, Thoughts and prayers were offered Monday and Tuesday, as you mentioned. Um, Donald Trump himself in campaigning said we have to get over it. Um, And that elections have consequences. If Republicans are in charge of uh, the governorship and the state house and the state Senate, uh, there's not an appetite there to do anything to tighten those up, as you mentioned. And the status quo is what you're going to have in Iowa. All right. Uh, We'll be back after a short break with more of our Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. Donna Hoffman of the University of Northern Iowa, Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, our two able political scientists. Uh, And when we come back, perhaps a few short words uh, on our state politics as the Iowa legislature reconvened uh, this week. Then we'll move on to um, yesterday, a federal appeals court seeming skeptical of Donald Trump's claim that he's immune from prosecution. We'll talk about it when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. So glad you're on board on this January 10th edition of River to River Politics Wednesday. Uh, Today, with Donna Hoffman of the University of Northern Iowa, Jim McCormick of Iowa State University. Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river2river at iowapublicradio.org. Let's go to our phones. Uh, James is with us, uh, tuned in from Des Moines. Hi, James. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Um, I'm I'm just calling about the privatization of the AEA and uh, how privatization so far in in Iowa has not worked. Uh, you know, talk about Medicaid and uh, uh, the uh, denial of uh, services and delay of services, and she touts that it's putting the money in their hands. Instead, it puts control in her hands. She's uh, unilaterally uh, with uh, a, uh, what, what do you call that when you have all three trifecta. Uh, houses? Yeah, trifecta. Well, uh, it, it, the, the trifecta, and none of this is helpful to Iowans. And the flat tax, uh, none of this is even Christian-like, and they're all saying that it's... Uh, um, uh, you know they they want to be um, protective of uh, of life in the womb, but they don't care about those children when they're born. I okay. I just see all of this as being unkind to the marginals in Iowa, who with the help that they have received in the past have been good contributing members to our state. James, thanks. Um, thanks for your view, James. Let's let's get a, a reaction. Donna, would you like to uh, touch on any of the things that uh, James said? 
Sure. Well, the um, the privatization. I mean, it's noted. Uh, James noted what was you know what the history was there in terms of uh, Medicaid in the state. Um, you know, we don't know what the details are in terms of what the AAA plan would be. There would be choice. The AAs will still exist at least for a period of time. There would be that competition, right? That that many people think is key in improving um, uh, services. But again, the devil is in the details. We don't know um, what that looks like. But you know, again, this is you know what a governor with a trifecta as as he noted, you know, can take away from election results is that this is what the people of Iowa uh, voted for. If it's not what the people of Iowa voted for, if you're unhappy, uh, as the caller is, then, you know, there are many uh, things that one can do. And it goes beyond voting, right? But elections have consequences, as I think I said earlier. And so uh, people who are elected take messages whether it's the right message or not, they're the interpreter of that. And then they put those uh, those impulses that they have into policy. And then every uh, regular election cycle, then citizens have an accountability mechanism. If you do like what has been done, you can vote those people in again. If you don't like what has been done, you can vote those people out of office. But it can go beyond that too, right? It can be going to a March for Our Life uh protest in the Capitol. It can be running for office yourself. And that's one of the things that democracy really needs is active and engaged citizens who can hear these proposals and then uh, use information to judge them and act accordingly. Let's zoom out to a a national uh, view here on this next story to have comment on yesterday, a federal appeals court uh, seeming skeptical of Donald Trump's claim that he's immune from prosecution. This, of course, over actions he took while president uh, involving efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, There were three judges on this federal appeals court uh, panel. Let's listen to a a couple of interesting uh, exchanges. Well, this first one, not really an exchange, but a a statement by one of the judges, Judge Karen L. Anderson. Let's listen. I think it's paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal laws. Now, we're at the motion to dismiss stage. The government has charged the specific criminal laws. We have to assume they're true. Jim, before you and and, and, uh, Donna comment, another interesting exchange. This is more of a back and forth uh, between another judge on this federal appeals court panel, Judge Florence Y. Pan, questioning Trump attorney D. John Sauer. I understand your position to be that a president is immune from criminal prosecution for any official act that he takes as president, even if that action is taken for an unlawful or unconstitutional purpose. Is that correct? With an an important exception, which is that if the president is impeached and convicted by the United States Senate in a, you know, proceeding that reflects, you know, widespread political consensus, that would authorize the prosecution under the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6? He he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal prosecution. But if you weren't, there would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that? Chief Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and... uh, 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 and our constitutional tradition and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not. I asked abuse. you a yes, no, yes or no question. 
Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. Interesting comments there. Pointed question from Judge Florence Y. Pan, uh, questioning Trump attorney John D. Sauer in this uh, case at in the federal appeals court. Um, over Donald Trump's claim that uh, he's immune from prosecution over actions he took while president, all of them, it seems. Jim, what do you make of uh, what we're hearing from uh, this federal appeals court? Well, this is really incredibly bizarre, you know, that a criminal act like that, you know, a murdering or calling for the killing of, you know, a political opponent, you know, would would not be subject to any kind of penalty until the president has been impeached. I, I can't imagine that the founders really anticipated that despite what uh, you know uh, the Trump attorney was uh, was making the claim about I think the real issue here ultimately you know it's not going to be decided by this court as uh, you know it's going to be appealed to the to the Supreme Court but you know to what extent is there any kind of absolute Im- immunity for for presidential behavior and how do, how far does it extend I think this is really the parameter of it how far does it extend when Say after the election, and you and really this was a kind of a, you know, in my view, a kind of a campaign effort that the Trump President Trump was engaging in, uh, with uh, with his speech to this group and so on. It seemed to me it was, you know, it's hard to make the case that this was a, you know, sort of an official presidential action uh, that therefore therefore should be subject to, you know, the presidential discretion and presidential mm-hmm. presidential immunity. I mean, I think that I I, I can't imagine well. <laughs> I guess I can imagine anything, but I can't quite imagine that the this court or the Supreme Court would hold that that uh, would grant grant the president absolute immunity. Yeah. Uh, Donna, you are a presidential scholar. Much of your research has gone into, you know, tracing executive power of presidents over generations. What do you think of what's going on? Um, this notion of impeachment and removal as a prerequisite, uh, essentially, for Um, criminal prosecution uh, is really not a serious argument, but it does kind of indicate one that it actually could end up being accepted, but two, I'm, but, and before, prior to that though, it it made its way into a court of law. Uh, One of the things we might see happen here and, and uh, this was actually justice judges here can interrupt right in this proceeding. And the first interruption came from one of the judges asking if this issue was properly before the court, Uh, because normally in this procedural aspect, uh, you would wait until a conviction has occurred before this issue would be raised. But this is such an important issue. Uh, it's they're trying to head it off in one sense, right? Uh, so you could actually see the the DC Circuit here um, say that it's not properly before the court. They we expect them to rule pretty quickly. It could be appealed to the Supreme Court, but of course the Supreme Court has uh, discretion here. They could or could not take it. If they largely agree with what the uh, lower courts have held here, they could leave it. Um, they could also take it up. We don't know. What we do expect here, though, is that this will probably be um, resolved relatively quickly in terms of, of court time here. Um, the question becomes this particular issue is uh, the whole larger issue uh, is set for trial on March 4th. I don't think a lot of people think that that uh, the special prosecutor will be able to to meet that. Uh, but I do think that they can probably get it done before the election. And so timing is a, is of the essence here, too. But it's also important for people as they are digesting this, that they understand um, the 
the foundation of what's going on here, that this is a constitutional argument about presidential power. And one of the fundamental aspects of uh, our constitution is constraining power. Wherever it, it occurs, that power is constrained. And that certainly is true uh, of the president here. And one of the very few places we see presidential power given in the constitution without um, any kind of check is the pardon power. And that was actually brought up in this hearing. You know, could a president giving uh, unlawful pardons, uh, in, in essence, in terms of uh, being bribed, for for example, that was one of the hypotheticals that was offered by Judge Pan as well. And so there's a lot of complexity here. Uh, our tendency is to try to boil that down into a couple of sound bites, but these issues are very difficult, and this is uh, and, and complex. And this is one area in which actually we probably uh, can see the plain language of the Constitution uh, is, is actually pretty clear here. But then there are all, all of these other court uh, issues in different jurisdictions, different indictments mm -hmm. that are plaguing Trump as well. And so this area is very complex. And one of the cautions is that, that citizens need to pay attention, right? They can't tune this out. Yeah. We have so many major legal cases against the former president. There's the New York State fraud case, the Manhattan defamation and sexual assault case, the Manhattan hush money case, uh, the Department of Justice the case in Mar-a-Lago documents, uh, also the Fulton County, Georgia election subversion case. Uh, the Department of Justice election subversion case. And additionally, more than 30 states uh, cases filing. We've heard a lot about this in our recent news, whether Trump should be thrown off the 2024 ballot uh, under a, a novel legal theory about the 14th Amendment. So this is just, I, I guess, a question here, uh, Here, and, and Jim, maybe you can tackle this. Uh, if the delaying, uh, delaying is on the, the, the former president's side here, um, if he can delay it, could he, as newly elected uh, un, uh, President Trump, make much of this or all of this go away? Well, as Donna was just talking about, in terms of the pardon power that the president have has under the Constitution, uh, I assume that he could uh, he could pardon him uh, himself here. I just wanted to add one thing about this other this case, the the uh, uh, D.C. Circuit. I I would be surprised. I, I heard what Donna was saying that you know that maybe that maybe the Supreme Court would re, you know refuse to take it. I just can't imagine that they would you know given the the importance of it that they would not take it and give a finality kind of decision to it rather than just de demur and and uh, accept what the uh, uh, what the D.C. Uh, appeals court uh, is saying. But I, I'd be interested in what Donna's response to that is. Yeah, I think that I, I would also kind of be surprised of that, but it is a possibility. And it is especially a possibility if the Supreme Court, one, thinks the lower court arguments are good and sound um, and unanimous. I think that probably helps as well. Um, but if the Supreme Court, you know, doesn't want to weigh in on the issue. Now, again, I do think it's a, a, an issue that they are likely to take up, but they don't have to is the point that I that I want to stress there. Um, and it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they could let the lower court decision stand. And it could also be, a, you know, an expediency uh, element to what they decide there as well. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. Donna Hoffman of UNI, Jim McCormick of ISU. Join us, 1-866-780-9100, or email river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, will the government avert a, a shutdown? Uh, a theme that uh, we've uh, touched on many times over recent years um, after a 
chaotic and unproductive year. This divided Congress returned this week to face a number of big fights uh, that lawmakers punted into this new year, uh, battles over government funding, foreign aid, immigration, uh, 10 days until the country once again faces the possibility of a government shutdown uh, because Congress fails uh, perhaps to fund key agencies serving Americans, uh, the funding for agriculture, energy, water, military construction, and veterans' affairs, and transportation, housing programs expiring on January 19th. The rest of the government's funding expires February 2nd. Now, we heard some news days ago, an attempt to avoid that. Um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, House Speaker Mike Johnson announcing a plan on Sunday that lawmakers uh, called for a spending package in line with a debt ceiling deal struck. Uh, Remember, between former Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden, Donna, where do you see efforts to avert a shutdown now? Well, so we know that over the weekend, that top line, as it is called, deal was struck, which is important because it sets basically the ceiling for the the 12 appropriations bills um, that the House is is still trying to to finish. And we should note that these were due October 1st, right? So we're operating under a laddered, as it is called, that's a new term here, continuing resolution. The first part, as you noted, expires January 19th, 10 days. The second part of it, February 2nd. Um, This gives them kind of a a target that was a moving target before. Now it's a little bit more set. Um, I think that the consensus is today that they still need extra time, pardon me, extra time, and that uh, we'll see one more continuing resolution. Then they would be able to get to uh, those top line bills and get them through. There's already dissension, however, from the Freedom Caucus in mm-hmm. this area, uh, not being happy with this. We should note that the <clears throat> of the um, House Republican majority has lost two more members. They're down to 220. Right. Uh, they don't have to lose very many. Uh, the Democrats likely in block would vote for this to keep the government going with enough Republicans to pass it. So I think it would probably go. <clears throat> but uh, then it brings up problems that Johnson has with his caucus. Right. The motion to vacate is still there. Um, I heard a little bit of rumbling about this this morning. It's really problematic for Speaker Johnson in terms of trying to be a leader, keep the government functioning, trying also to be uh, the leader of the House conference. Right. Uh, Jim, a quick reaction before we go to break in about a minute. I'll just throw in the quote from Chip Roy, a Republican of Texas. Uh, he doesn't doesn't rule out ousting his speaker over the funding agreement. Um, he says Johnson is doing all the same stupid crap that we opposed, telling Fox News. Uh, Jim, less than a minute, your comment. Well, I think the, the funding actually is also tied to the uh, the border Ukraine Israel yes. package here. And what uh, what the Republicans are trying to do is to to use that the leverage with because the, the president wants that bill uh, to get some further cuts in, in terms of the appropriation bill. So I think we ought to think of these these two items as linked together. But I think that in the short term, yes, they're probably going to have a, another continuing resolution, uh, at least for the January 9th, the four uh, the four uh, appropriations bill for January 19th. But the ones for for February 2nd, maybe we'll still still be in, in play. So I okay. think we'll have just that uh, uh, temporary uh, continuing resolution just for those four. More when we return with Jim McCormick and Donna Hoffman. Politics Wednesday here on River to River.
Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. And we're back midstream in this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, Politics Wednesday with Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, Donna Hoffman of the University of Northern Iowa. Uh, let's continue just a, a moment, Jim. I have some questions, uh, a question or two for you uh, concerning the foreign policy part of the congressional government funding impasse. Uh, as you mentioned before the break, uh, funding for uh, aid for Israel, um, uh, for Ukraine, also tied up with the southern border security uh, uh, concerns uh, there. Uh, Jim, with our southern border and the Ukraine aid tied together, do you see the Democrats moving closer to, uh, you know, Republican positions, especially with the um, uh, the large number of migrants at our southern border? And, um, you know, Governor Abbott of Texas, for instance, uh, uh, flying and busing uh, migrants to northern cities. Sure. I I think that, um, you know, I was expecting maybe even before this program that the, you know, the, the, uh, Senator Langford said that in the Senate that they have been negotiating a, a bill, you know, to with regard to the border issue. And I was hoping to see that released. But I think what, what that will obviously contain is a little bit uh, more movement towards what the Republicans want. But the, the question remains, and I think it's probably a non-starter because the because the House has had much more stringent kind of view. They don't want to give any more money uh, to the border that, uh, that simply would be used to, to house uh, the, those, um, the migration that, that is occurring. They want it in, ter- in terms of uh, enforcement. So I think it's very much of an impasse. But what I was saying before the break is that, you know, the, the, the House and particularly the Republicans are trying to use this as leverage with regard to these uh, you know, whether there will be a government shutdown or not, although the Republicans have to be very careful, it seems to me, because, you know, that they'll get blamed uh, if there, in fact, is a government shutdown. I think, you know, by uh, Speaker Johnson accepting the top line number, really, that was a, a, a former Speaker McCarthy's number, he's willing to accept the Democrats will come to his support. I mean, Chip Roy, as you quoted there, you know, is is threatening maybe to to undo the speakership. I don't think the Republicans have any stomach for that, given the the what they went through with regard to trying to trying to replace after t- kicking out McCarthy and then trying to re- replace him. So uh, I think probably the calculation by Speaker Johnson is is accurate, and they're probably more likely uh, to move in the direction of what the what this Senate uh, uh, proposal with regard to. Ukraine and Israel and and the border uh, mm-hmm. all linked together here in terms of this kind of budget package. Mm-hmm. Quickly, b- before we move back to our domestic politics, the, the topic of Ukraine in here, Jim, the implications of sagging or perhaps just delayed support from Congress for more aid for Ukraine, for for the U- Ukrainians in their yeah. Um, well, well, Speaker uh, Johnson came out. Uh, I just saw a report that. He actually, when he talked to, uh, you know, uh, Zelensky, that Zelensky said, really, February is the sort of the drop dead date with regard to getting uh, sufficient funding. So that's probably what the sort of the goal that they're looking at in terms of getting it done, getting it done by then. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think we can, you know, pass over what has happened with these tremendous missile attacks 
that have occurred on the Ukrainian cities here, uh, you know, in, in, in recent days here, you know, before Christmas and then and a little bit afterwards here, uh, that there is really a, a, a need for this. I mean, we see these Republican candidates who are that are vying for the, you know, for the presidency all talking about, uh, you know, that they want to really have a cutback and want the Europeans to do more. Uh, I don't think that Speaker Johnson is actually is actually there. I think that he's willing to to provide some assistance if he can get some trade off on uh, on these other matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, a lot about since we're only five days away uh, from the caucus here in Iowa. We've been counting down to it, uh, but tonight we have two Republicans: uh, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, taking the CNN debate stage at Drake University in Des Moines for a final televised debate before those caucuses next week. Um, uh, The man, of course, they are both chasing, Donald Trump. He's again skipping this debate. Instead, he's taking part in counter-programming on the rival network, Fox News, with a primetime town hall of his own. Uh, Between, Donna, between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, what are you expecting from these two? Are you sensing that they may change from what they've had in past debates? Uh, uh, will there be bickering among themselves while Donald Trump is, presses his case alone at the same time on Fox News? Right. So where will viewers' attention be, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, the the, ex, uh, the exciting part, perhaps, is who will be uh, in second place, um, Haley or DeSantis. If polling is correct, and there's some question there, because the polling is the likely Iowa caucus goer, and we know the weather forecast on Monday uh, is supposed to be really quite terrible. Negative 22 windshield uh, in Blackhawk County. And there's always been a question about Trump's support. Is it soft in the state? Mm. Um, and I think we'll have a chance to see that on Monday. Haley's doing very well in polling in New Hampshire. I think she'll try to capitalize on that message um, in the, the debate tonight. Um, but let's go back to that notion of, you know, turnout is key in a caucus and campaigns expend tons of energy to get their um, people ready to go to be prepared to attend an hours long meeting on a cold night in Iowa in January um, to understand what the caucuses are to get them to turn out. There's a number of things that can impact this turnout, weather is one. and so, but you know, if, if also absent the, the weather, there is a notion of, oh, well, Trump's so far ahead, there's no point. Their supporters might not come out. Even Trump's supporters uh, could be affected by that. So a caucus is really gonna be on Monday attended by the most fervent supporters. And Trump certainly has a pocket of those. The question is, how big is that pocket? And what about the other candidates here? Um, and so it's very difficult to try to predict, you know, what the outcome on Monday might look like. But again, I think Haley tonight in talking with DeSantis is going to um, try to, she's been a little bit critical of Trump in certain quarters. Um, DeSantis has been less so. They both said that they would pardon Trump for any kind of conviction that he might have. But Haley has some momentum, at least in New Hampshire. 
Uh, can she bring that into this debate in Iowa and, and capitalize on that for Monday? I think that's kind of one of the questions. Trump, on the other hand, the rallies that he's held recently in, um, in Iowa have been very wide ranging in terms of his rhetoric. That is, it's not really uh, coherent in terms of what he is talking about in, in, in many respects. Um, this is a different kind of forum. It's a, it's a town hall, though. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how those things um, stack up for any of those, you know, potentially undecided caucus goers. But again, if I'm an undecided caucus goer in Iowa right now and I'm looking at the weather forecast, I might just stay undecided and stay home. Yeah. Before I go to Jim, Donna, to, to drill down a little bit on what you were saying, what, in your view, would a win look like for DeSantis or Haley? DeSantis, of course, putting so many resources in Iowa, going to all 99 uh, counties, uh, and then you have um, Nikki Haley with the momentum. Um, c- can you, uh, if we accept the polls that Donald Trump will win here, how close does Nikki Haley have to come to declare an, uh, a win of a, of a sort and move on to New Hampshire, where she's polling much better. All she has to do uh, is right beat the expectations game. She has to say, look, I did better than expected here. Um, and then she can capitalize on that. Um, even, uh, you know, she could even harken back to earlier times in which DeSantis was doing better to say, look at how far I've come. Um, you always will spin the outcome uh, or, or portray the outcome uh, of the Iowa caucuses in I beat expectations, even if, you know, we need to take that with a grain of salt. And so expectations is the, is the game there. And again, I think, you know, even if she were to pull, if current polling is, is suggestive, and again, question mark, uh, you know, if she were to pull within 10 points of Donald Trump, I think that would be uh, quite significant. Um, and so we'll see what that looks like. Yeah. And uh, Donald Trump's campaign evidently recognizing a p- potential threat by Nikki Haley with uh, attacks in recent days on Nikki Haley. And we remember Nikki Haley, that administration's, that former administration's uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Uh, Jim, weigh in here. Well, I think that if, if Trump doesn't get 50 percent or more, he will be portrayed as not having succeeded in Iowa. And so what the other candidates do, even if it's you know, depending on how close they are, uh, they were still going to be able to claim victory here because they, you know, they they have kept, uh, you know, this kind of all the polling shows he's got 50 percent or more. You know, I think that's to where, where the, to look at, you know, what the outcome will be and, and how the, you know, how it will be portrayed by the press that, you know, if he didn't get 50 percent, uh, you know, then both Haley and DeSantis, depending on, you know, what the outcome with those two are can make mm-hmm. can make really important claims here uh, with regard to success and use that as as sort of momentum and and Haley uh, you know is particularly in a good driver's seat given the polling in in New Hampshire because that you know ups uh, her possibilities I think that she's come within what is it uh, five or six points now in some of the latest polling in New Hampshire uh, and so if if Trump were not to get that sort of 50 percent or very close to it, uh, and uh, they, these two ca- other two candidates were to, to move up the, the scale in, in terms of relatively close to him, I think that is going to be probably the, the benefit, uh, particularly for Haley and also, you know, calling into question whether there's this automaticity that, that uh, Trump has got the nomination sold up. Mm-hmm. Donna, a quick word about the other candidates in the running, Chris Christie, uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, Asa Hutchinson. What would a successful caucus night for them look like? What what could it potentially mean? 
Well, Christie hasn't even campaigned in the state, so him registering really any kind of support could be spun as a success for him. Um, Ramaswamy didn't uh, didn't make the criteria for CNN to be on that debate stage. He's probably the most visible uh, of those candidates that you mentioned in Iowa. But, you know, there's Asa Hutchinson reminding people he's still in the race. Um, but again, those candidates who have that, you know, probably a smaller level of support. Uh, could be infected, affected by that enthusiasm aspect, which could both be positive and negative. And so um, that's also, though, those those candidates, those uh, maybe third tier, we might call them candidates, pulling even some support, though, makes it less likely Donald Trump gets that above 50 percent that Jim Jim was mentioning. And mm -hmm. so having you know more candidates there spreads that out um, and affects, you know, the the top number for Trump, potentially. I think one other thing, if I can just throw this in, you know, you know, turnout is important, but I mean, I'm really interested to see because these candidates have said they're all the organized with, you know, 99 counties and, and, and so on. It'll be really interesting to see exactly uh, to what extent across the state that this kind of organizational uh, work has really has really paid off uh, for all of these candidates. The other thing, I think that the, the debate tonight between uh, Haley and DeSantis should be absolutely fascinating, you know, because they've They've uh, obviously uh, uh, attacked one another uh, rather rather strongly with their ads uh, via television and and even in person, and so I think that will be great make for great uh, television viewing, and CNN is going to be the beneficiary of that. It seems to me tonight. We have just enough time to play a little bit of the sitting president Biden giving his first major 2024 campaign speech uh, the day before the January 6th anniversary of that Capitol attack. Uh, last Friday, his speech near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, using the location where George Washington staged his troops during the Revolutionary War to draw a connection to the 2024 presidential race. He spoke at length of former President Donald Trump's actions and rhetoric leading to the events of January 6th and Trump's descriptions of the attack three years after. In trying to rewrite the facts of January 6th, Trump is trying to steal history the same way he tried to steal the election. But he, we knew the truth because we saw it with our own eyes. This wasn't like something, a story being told. It was on television repeatedly. We saw it with our own eyes. Trump's mob wasn't a peaceful protest. It was a violent assault. They were insurrectionists, not patriots. They weren't there to uphold the Constitution. They were there to destroy the Constitution. Trump won't do what an American president must do. He refuses to denounce political violence. So hear me clearly. I'll say what Donald Trump won't. Political violence is never, ever acceptable in the United States political system. Never, never, never. It has no place in a democracy. None. You can't be pro-insurrectionist and pro-American. A minute for each of you. Donna, take it uh, first. What do you think of this first major 2024 campaign speech by the president? Well, both of these speeches, he gave one that you mentioned uh, at Valley Forge and then another one in, in Charleston, South Carolina, yes. many of the same themes tied to the location, though. And in particular, this one was close to Valley Forge. He drew upon Washington in particular to make his points in that first speech. Washington, as a general who gave up power voluntarily, he stressed that. Uh, duty. He stressed that as well, in addition to some of the things uh, in that clip um, that you played. 
and in the Mother Emanuel speech in South Carolina, uh, a, a black audience uh, at a historically black church, the oldest one in the South, um, also stressed different themes, but related also to um, location that there was a white supremacist that came in that church and massacred some of the congregants. Uh, he has a personal tie there, and he played upon those themes as well, all drawing on this defensive democracy. Mm -hmm. Jim, the final minute to you on the, the, the president's campaign focus on what he sees as anti-democratic work uh, by his opponent or likely opponent in the general election. Yeah, I think this is going to be the kind of theme that he's going to uh, strike uh, throughout the campaign, uh, you know, uh, maybe meshing some issues in with it, but really the 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 threat that uh, that a Trump presidency would was posed to the Constitution, to a to the grant democratic system, uh, I think will be what we will see constantly. And and you know they've already uh, ginned up a, a a TV ad, uh, you know, in this in this regard as well. So uh, this is kind of the opening salvo, but I, I think we'll. We'll see this throughout the uh, the next uh, nine or ten months here. So okay. this will be this will be what we'll 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 be uh, focusing on. Right, Jim McCormick, professor emeritus of political science at Iowa State University. Thank you for being with us, Jim. Thank you very much, Ben. And thanks to Donna Hoffman, of course, as well, the Chuck and Barbara Grassley, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. Donna and Jim, until next time. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Well, a number of persistent problems continue to face black Iowans in particular. Tomorrow on this program, I'll take uh, talk with participants you know, taking part in the MLK Now 2024 conference coming up this weekend. Today's show was produced by Samantha McIntosh with help from Maddie Willis and Steve Cooper. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.